Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Debbie Cohen, an amazing human being who has had, and continues to have, a big impact on my life and the lives of others. She brings a unique perspective to this podcast from her experiences integrating coaching deeply into her various roles in the corporate world as an HR leader and executive, including senior leadership roles at Time Warner, Razorfish, Mozilla, First Look, and Clever. Her pioneering work at Mozilla, which revolved around principles of distributed decision-making and delegated leadership, was featured in a business school case study at Berkeley Haas, and in 2013, one management case study of the year. The study showcases the innovative talent strategy she helped create, which included a series of initiatives related to employee compensation, onboarding, and development. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Today, she's expanding on this mission to change the world of work by co-leading a movement to bring more humanity into the workplace through her organization and forthcoming book called Humanity Works. We dive deep into what this means and how bringing a coaching lens into organizations can truly shift the way people relate to each other and improve productivity. We also discuss a variety of topics, including why most of us act in ways that unconsciously protect our identities, how to maximize your client's opportunities to succeed, why asking for help is a gift, how to tell if a client is ready or not for powerful coaching, and how leadership is less about competencies and more about self-awareness. Finally, you'll also hear a couple of extra minutes at the very beginning before we officially go live as we speak about some of the loss that's occurred during the pandemic and how we're making meaning from it. It's raw, it's messy, and it's real, so I left it in for you. Debbie is simply a force of nature, wrapped in a velvet glove, and we pack a lot into this rich conversation. Please enjoy. Part of what you were saying, this, I don't know if that was the first time you've lost a peer, but there is something about losing a peer that makes you stand closer to your own mortality and realize, you know, I loved your story about, you know, what would be said about you. And that's really what the journey is about, right? Are we crafting the narrative and living our life in the way that we want to be seen and have right. the impact we want as opposed to just defaulting our way through the journey. So yeah. no matter when it ends, you know, it has, it has the meaning that you want it to have. Yeah. There's a lot of confronting, I think. And I think for me, participating in something like skydiving has really brought me very close to death in a way that I am surrounded by people who are willing to do something and to be in a community that you know poses a higher risk, higher risk than the average bear. Mm -hmm. But there's something freeing about being with people who recognize that and still choose to take a calculated risk because of how it makes us feel and how we're able to connect with other people from different walks of life. I've lost people. I think the first one was in college. And then, you know, since then, there've been people along the way. And yet again, it's another thing that I think to your point reminds us how short and precious life is. So how do we do it better, right? How do we really live the way that we want to be remembered? Mm -hmm. And how much you can't control. Like part of, you know, the narrative in the book is the only thing you can really control is yourself. That's it. And, you know, how you choose to show up and what you do with your words and your time and your intention and it's all it's the yeah. only thing you can really really control is yourself yeah. um so i'm super excited to, to have you here 
Anything you need before we get started? I don't think so. This is the first. This is the first guest podcast I've been on. I said to Kate, "Oh my gosh, we need to be doing guest podcasts. We're tired of talking about our own stuff." Like, so. Awesome. All right. Well, here we go. Okay. Hi, Debbie. It's awesome getting to speak to you today. Thanks, Leland. Excited to be here. <laughs> I've seen that you've described yourself as a non-conventional HR executive. Hmm. What does that mean? Oh, that's a big story. So let's keep it short. Um, I didn't come into HR because I thought it was like the bee's knees and the best place to make an impact in business. I came into it because it, I thought it was broken. And I was standing as a critic on the outside of what was happening. And an opportunity came up to um, head HR for Time Warner corporate. And um, I was being really encouraged by a lot of people. And so I thought I could stand on the outside and be critical, or I could step in and see how hard is it to actually affect change. Uh, and so coming in without a, a sort of degree, a background, my, my background's in education and organizational behavior. Um, you know, there was that saboteur of like, what do I know? I don't know anything about HR. And so it let me question why we do what we do and challenge that status quo, which helped us identify uh, ways of making greater meaning out of and value out of our work instead of just following along um, with what I just didn't believe was helpful or beneficial to the humans and ultimately the outcome for business. Is that the perspective that you went in with or how did that evolve over time? No, I pretty much went in with that perspective of um, this is, this isn't right. You know, I just was always a big believer that, you know, the heartbeat of the company should sit with HR and instead if I use a metaphor of a dog, you know, they were more like the tail wagging the machine instead of the nose at the front of the dog, sensing out what's going on and what's needed and where to, where to help guide the organization. Um, you know, these are back in the days when HR didn't have what was called a seat at the table. Everybody was screaming for it, but nobody actually knew what they wanted to do there. And so, you know, taking sort of a compliment of, good business insights and strategy and thinking about the whole, which is part of what I do, and then thinking about humans as part of that whole or in the key part of that whole to make business actually thrive, um, you know, was just always where my soft spot was and uh, where my heart was. And, you know, I just get frustrated when roadblocks get put up by systems or inside ourselves that keep people from bringing the best of who they are to, in my case, the workplace. Um, and so, you know, that's ultimately, I think, what led me a little bit to coaching. I'm curious, what are some of those common misconceptions or things that you've seen in the workplace where you really think that there's a better way to do things? Oh, there are hundreds. So here's a, here's a low-hanging fruit one. Um, expense policies, right? You take the whole category of policies and procedures and what they do, which is actually telling people what to do, not how to be. So they actually reinforce, again, back to 
the current events and Black Lives Matter, I'm a big believer that our policies and practices actually create systemic oppression. I think it happens for our Black population. I think it happens for lots of populations. I think it happens for humans inside systems in general. So a little example to answer your question. Expense policies. Expense policies start from the assumption, I can't trust you. Hmm. And so I'm, uh, you know, I worked in a company where I said, what would it look like if we actually trusted our people? How would we rewrite these policies that actually reinforce the narrative, we trust you? What would that look like? And so we got rid of, don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we said something like, treat your expenses like they are your own money. Spend like you would question. And so if that means you want a steak dinner, then buy yourself a steak dinner. But would you buy a $500 bottle of wine? And so we addressed the issues when they came up, but they rarely came up because when you trust people and show them how to do what you believe in, then they're going to behave in that way Mm -hmm. most of the time. And you don't create policies for the outliers. You deal with the outliers when they come up. So it's just like a little example. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. (laughs) I love that idea of giving people some ownership over how to think about things. Uh, But I'm wondering, given how people have such a variance in how they value their own money and in things, how do you make sure that that kind of policy is equitable? Why why does it have to be equitable? What am I trying to say? How How do we make sure everybody's treated equally? Yes. Oh, so in my, so first I wouldn't advocate a $500. That would be an outlayer I would address, right? And it'll show up in an expense policy. And the the question will be like, wow, tell me about this $500 bottle of wine. You know, that seems outside sort of the sort of, because the the organization will create its own norms as you give people that kind of freedom Mm. without overly controlling them. And I think that's where you have to be clear about you know, we were just talking about this before we came on air, like, why does the company exist? What are the values that you have present in that company? And how are those values expressed through behavior? And then you focus on what to do. In most companies and in most HR groups, they focus on what are we doing? They don't look at how you do it. And and they've got words on a plaque somewhere that actually aren't fully expressed and lived through the behaviors of the organization. And so you end up with all this disconnect, right? But if you start threading those things all together, then actually the community reinforces the behavior. of. And when you are an outlier, then that, that causes you to have to stand in question to like, what's that all about? And maybe it's because norms need to change and you're the, you know, you're the catalyst for that. And maybe it's because, um, you know, you made a bad judgment or like that happens. Humans are perfectly imperfect. So, you know, then how do you deal with with an outlier in a way that steps toward trying to understand what that was about as opposed to becoming punitive in your response? Again, a different way of thinking about how to be with the humans inside a organization or a system or a structure of most any kind. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating that you've had so much experience uh, in companies. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, going back to the coaching question, how did you get into coaching and how have you seen it be incorporated or not in a more corporate or startup environment? Yeah, it's changed over the years. 
So I got into coaching in 2010 uh, when I was working as the head of HR for a company. Um, and it was part of my own professional development plan. Uh, it was paid for by the company. And I thought uh, when I joined that company, I wanted more experience in uh, executive coaching. I wanted to spend more time coaching the top team. And at the time, my idea of coaching, I didn't know this until I got into coaching, was that I would just fix them. Like I could see what was wrong and I would just use subtle manipulation, again, didn't know that <laughs> at the time, to help them change so that what I thought was the answer was what they were actually doing. Now, all of us on this call know that is not at all what coaching is about, but I didn't know that when I enrolled in CTI. And I thought, I'm just going to get some more tools to put in my toolkit that's going to make me better at this. And instead, what happened was, you know, my eyes got open to what coaching is and what it could be and um, how it, you know, affected and changed me and brought me back to some of my big roots of what I believed in life that had gotten lost because you get inside those systems and they suck you up and they move you along and what looks like success from a paycheck or a status perspective may not at all be um, how you want to be in the world. And it was just a big eye opener personally and uh, changed the way I thought about building, um, building out a systemic organization and supporting people. Wow, powerful. Mm. On that note, how would you describe what coaching is today? Well, when I think about coaching, it's really about helping people unearth the, their own roadblocks to who they want to be and how they want to express themselves in the world. And most of us don't even pause to think about who do I want to be? We're so busy, caught up in the doing of our lives. And so, you know, the gift of a coach, I think, is to be able to stay and be present in that discovery with the client and not try to rush it or not decide that we know how to fix it or that we know what's best, but really helping that human uh, find their own agency and their own uh, way. And usually our work there is uncovering the roadblocks that are holding them back. I feel like with a lot of people that I work with, there's a thread where a lot of who we think we should be, those inputs are given to us by the external world, our parents or schools or jobs or the community or the country. How would you guide someone to sort of look inward instead at what someone wants from the inside versus here are the expectations from society and trying to meet those? Sometimes, you know, there's a whole the learning ladder, right? We're unconsciously incompetent. We don't even know what we don't know. And so I think in coaching, it's asking those questions that start turning that flashlight on in the inner recesses of somebody's mind that lets them sort of explore, you know, a question that they hadn't really thought of before because it, it had never been asked. The um, One of my favorite authors and where I've learned a lot, I use this a lot in coaching companies and individuals, um, is the work of Bob Anderson and Mastering Leadership. 
And in the leadership circle profile, which is the diagnostic I use in doing 360s with people, um, in the core of it is your identity. And he talks about exactly what you said, your identity being shaped by the environments you grew up in, the messages society has given to you about who you should be and how you should be and what you should do. And that 85% of adults never evolve out of a reactive state, meaning we spend our energy protecting that identity without ever stopping to say, is that actually who I wanna be? And so when I think about companies and their competitive advantage, individuals who are trying to make a difference in their work and in their life, that's the work to be done, is actually shining that light on that identity and deciding what's important to me about that, what is not important about that, and standing in choice about who you really wanna be in this world and then beginning to examine how you're being um, in, in accordance to that and seeing where it lines up and where it doesn't and why not. Love that. Yeah. It seems so straightforward and easy, but it's really <laughs> not. I mean, it's really not. Like, here's my personal story. We're at CTI, so Coaches Training Institute for people who might not know what that is. Um, there was a session when I went through it that was called Fundamentals. And Fundamentals was really about understanding your values. Are you living them? And I remember sobbing my way through the end of that session because I realized, because first I didn't know I was going to be a subject of my own education. Uh, I realized, you know, I'd spent my life working with young kids and helping give them agency and helping parents become great parents and live their values with their kids and become conscious of that. And, you know, my career ended up in this very amazing journey that I realized I had gotten swooped up in that as well. And that I actually wasn't being who I wanted. I wasn't having the conversations that I wanted. I wasn't actually affecting the world and being with people in the way I wanted to be because this narrative about what it looked like to do that job at that role in these places, um, it sort of taken away the person I really wanted to be. And it was, it was transformational for me. Like, and from that, I went on to do, you know, things that were big and brave and courageous and to find a voice that was strong and centered and grounded. And, mm. you know, it's a very impactful place to, to live from. Wow. Did you ever feel like you had to choose in the sense of, in order to be more expressed, doesn't mean that you have to leave, leave the world of industry? Mm -mm. Actually, you know, mm. I... Actually, I sort of stepped farther into it, right? Because that was the challenge for myself was, mm. can you, you know, I'm always a big one of like, do they just write about it in books? Ironically, as I'm writing a book, do they just write about it in a book or can it actually happen, right? Can, it, can this actually live? And part of my journey going into companies was how hard is it to make this live? And let me tell you, it's super hard. I think along the way, I came up with tenants mm. that helped me lean in and remember um, what's important to me. So one of those is you have to meet people at their point of need, not your point of need. 
going back to, I think I'm going to fix them, right? I might see the roadblock, but I have to meet them where they are. And that's true if it's an organization or a leadership team or the CEO of a company or a first-time employee. Like you have to meet people where they are because that's where their journey is. And it's about them, it's not about you. The other one that came from my early childhood days was this idea of how do you be a supportive presence? And the work that uh, I did back in those days looked at a supportive presence about um, touching people at the least point necessary because anything more than that and you take away their opportunity to learn. Um, and again, it's always all about them and it is not about you. Um, and I think that's probably something I had to learn to let go of and incorporate. What do you mean by let go of and reincorporate? I had to let go of things like you're not in control. I'm not in control of what happens out there. And, the, and back to the only thing you get to control is yourself. I had to find the ways to remind myself where I am in control because I am a bit of that kind of control freak and um, make sure that I don't take away the agency of somebody else. Yeah. Even if I'm firing them, like, you know, 2008, I was the you know queen of reduction in workforce. And, you know, in those very tough, challenging moments, how do you stay with people and give them agency um, and belief in themselves so that they can continue to move forward? Very relevant topic right now. What, what advice would you have for people who may be faced with that? Well, I think there are a couple of things. You know, so many people right now are being impacted um, because of no fault of their own, right? And that's certainly what we faced in 2008. With the layoffs, it was an economic downturn. You know, a contrite thing would be it isn't personal, and yet it feels very personal when your livelihood is taken away, your ability to communicate with people might be taken away with computers or phones or whatever your industry might be, you know, basic needs are concerned. And the advice I would offer people is um, know that you're worthy of asking for help. And that might be refreshing a resume, learning a new industry, networking in with people, but it's hard to do it on your own. Um, so ask for help. And the other, and know you're worthy of accepting that help. It isn't a deficit. It's actually a place of strength to be, mm. um, to ask for people to help you. It's, you know, a perspective somebody offered me once is when you ask people for help, it's a gift, knowing that you are worthy of receiving their love. People will help you because they care about you. Um, and sometimes that's a hard thing for people to accept. It's hard for me. I, I grew up with a mentality where asking for help is a weakness mm -hmm. and actually being strong is, hey, I can do this myself. Mm -hmm. So I love that reframe. Yeah. I'd love to dig a bit more into some of the challenges you faced along the way, especially within companies and how you navigated them. Any in particular challenge you want me to talk about? Um, there, there, there are all kinds. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier how tough it was to bring this level of depth, introspection, self-awareness into an environment where you're trying to shift the focus from the doing to the being and really rethinking the 
the bigger vision of why we're doing this, these things. So I'm wondering if you have an example about one of those struggles trying to implement something that you knew was going to be better for people, but that may have entailed a compromise or a sacrifice from a leadership perspective. No, it's pretty specific. Well, what's coming up for me when you ask that is less, you know, it's sort of hard. I mean, you know me, I don't look at challenges like hard obstacles. I look at them like, oh, there's something juicy. What can I do with that? So my orientation tends to be uh, how do we conquer a hard problem as opposed to what gets in my way. Um, but there are a couple things. Um, and there's a case study, it's available on my LinkedIn profile that was written um, by Haas Berkeley was their case study in 2013, maybe, and it won their management case of the year uh, that looked at the ways I stepped into Mozilla. So when I joined Mozilla as their CPO, their chief people officer, they had never had an HR before. It, they had recruiting, they had operations, which is like got you all processed through, uh, and that was about it. And and it was an open source, is still an open source environment, and they did not want a traditional HR executive. They wanted somebody who would think differently. And so I had to step into that organization and understand them first, right? So first there was like, help me understand you and how this all works and learn and learn and learn. Um, and then we had to like triage the bleeding because there was. Um, and then I had to figure out how do we want to be with this group, partly from their point of need and partly to do it in a way that met what I believed was important. And so as the team was built that would support the organization, my entire leadership team, my team of nine, and all of my business partners uh, were went through CTI coaching. And that meant how we were with people was consistent and how we functioned as a team had some commonality in its language and its and our belief about you know, the things we were each limited on, the things that we needed to grow from. Um, we used to have this funny phrase with each other, like no sneak coaching, like don't be sneak coaching me in this moment. Sneak coaching, uh, what does that mean? Sneak coaching, <laughs> sneak coaching would be like you and I are in a conversation and suddenly I just like slide into coaching with you as opposed to being with you as just like a peer or a colleague. And over time, of course, we develop the behaviors that are you know, we just live our lives by. But in the beginning, as everybody was sort of learning them, they were like, no sneak coaching. Like, don't be don't, don't be sneaking in here and trying to coach me in this moment. I just want to rant and vent. I don't want to, you know, have to understand what that's all coming from, <laughs> what I want to do with it. Uh, so that was like a little funny with the team. But what happened, right, was when you had a whole team of people who approached the organization from that way, then when a manager would come to like talk about what was an issue with the performance of an employee, the way we approached that with that manager was very different than maybe a traditional HR group that would be like, well, we better put them on a performance plan. And, you know, for me, I always felt like performance plans was our biggest failure because we would want to be able to stand in relationship with that person and help and let them find their way of, this is too much of a struggle and I don't, this is not where I'm at my best and can be most successful and help them understand they're worthy of being successful 
and this may not be the right place at the right time, but there is a place where their where their capabilities can be successful. Very different orientation and way of being with your people. Helping managers understand where they might be contributing to any conflict or tension that they have with an employee, where their expectations are coming from and are those shared or not. And just because you're the manager, does that give you the authority to say my way is the highway or is there a way to step towards your people and understand what they need so that you can co-create what you're trying to do together as opposed to uh, in a more controlled authoritarian kind of way. So it, it worked for that organization because they were very egalitarian in the way that they thought about distributed authority. And, and yet we were growing like crazy and there was more infrastructure and there was more bureaucracy being built and added. So, you know, strategically there was this balance between what's needed and how do you do that at the least point necessary so that you can continue to let the organization grow and evolve. Um, and so, you know, it was a big learning, it was a big learning curve, um, but, you know, but I think it was worth it. You know, mm -hmm. and I know for the era of time that I was there and the team was there, I know because we still have contact with a lot of those people that it touched their lives in a different kind of way. What were some of the outcomes of that work? Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm proudest of, and I remember Gary Kovacs, our CEO, is like, you want to hang on to one piece that will be your legacy piece. And we developed this program called LEAD, which was called Leadership Exploration and Discovery. So again, a very different approach to teaching people about leadership where lots of companies rightly or wrongly, will have competencies and everybody has to show their ability to fit into these competencies. And I was just a big believer that if every person was living their fullest expression, then the very best of their potential would be brought to the organization. And what happens if you have a whole company filled with people who are at their fullest potential? Like, how could an organization not thrive in that kind of environment? Um, and so our leadership, the LEAD program offered, well, there were a couple of things. One is I went into the organization and identified where was the pain the greatest. And because we were growing so fast, the pain was the greatest at the director level, that intersection between interfacing with the top leadership of the organization and trying to direct the day-to-day -day operations of the, of the work. Uh, and there was a lot of confusion about what that meant and what their role was and how they were supposed to, what they were supposed to do. And a lot of hand flapping about waiting for leadership to tell them and leadership's waiting for them to inform. And so it was an opportunity to step forward to where the pain was the greatest. And I believe that's the right place because that's when people are most open to trying something new. So I didn't start with the top of the house. I started with the middle of the organization. Hmm. And there were, I don't know, 60 people maybe at that level um, or above. And so everyone was invited to the cohorts. Um, and there were a couple of rules. There were some hard ground rules. Like um, if you missed a session, you got kicked out. Because there was an important message being made about your commitment to your own growth and the cohort. There was a subtext in there of, you know, we started out with just a day and by the end you were gone three days about how do you let go and let your teams lead. 
And so the design was actually done to support the evolution of their own growth and belief in themselves and the capabilities of their team. Um, and there was lots of beautiful stuff in the, in the design, but it wasn't about your competencies. It was about self-awareness and helping them identify um, who they wanted to be and look at their leadership of their current state um, alongside that. They all had these 360s through the leadership circle profile I was mentioning. That one person said it was like a chemotherapy of 360. Uh, it was so painful and, and saved their lives. I mean, there's a quote from him in the book. Um, we used a tool that came from Henry Kimsey House at CTI called I Am Typing, where instead of all these diagnostics where you self-assess, you know, your colors, parachutes, temperamental traits, um, it's actually a chance for you to understand the impact that you create on others and how to uh, take full responsibility for your impact and at the same time live fully expressed. So like, how do you, how do you navigate um, those waters? Um, and that, that was some of the most transformational work for people that happened in those, in that program. In the meantime, what also happened is a cohort began to form at that director level and they began to work more effectively together. They had a shared set of skills that they could use with each other and call each other out on to make you accountable. One of those funny ones was yes and, what I like about that, which is a way of becoming generative. And we'd be in director meetings and you'd hear somebody be like, not a but, yes. And what I like about that, and it became kind of a humorous <laughs> way of introducing and infusing new shared skills into the organizations. What was amazing about LEAD is as these directors started coming back into the organization, behaving in these ways, uh, it started trickling down into their teams. Mm -hmm. And so LEAD uh, spawned a program called Tribe. And Tribe was all the skills that we offered the LEAD participants uh, deconstructed into a program that people could self-select into. Um, and we had huge adoption of people um, self-selecting. And you could pick any module at any time, believing they're going to choose the one that meets their point of need most. Um, and so we, we loosened some of the constraints up in the way that the masses of the organization. And we also offered it out to our volunteer population, which again, in an open source community, um, works as an extended part of your uh, workforce, if you want to think about it that way. So it was, it was a very systemic way of being and supporting the, you know, people as they evolve. And um, it was pretty magical. Here's a funny story. So we were trying to do a very hard thing inside the organization and two people at that director level held a lot of influence over what was gonna happen. Uh, and they did not see eye to eye on the direction. And because of that, there was huge conflict, huge controversy and the project stalled, like it couldn't go forward. And we talked about this at director's level. We talked about it at executive team meetings. And the decision was made by the CEO that they were just gonna you know, call everybody into a room, tell them what to do, how to behave, what they should be doing. So they did, and then I checked in after it and how'd that go? And they're like, oh yeah, 
mm, you know, all what you would classically expect. I told them what they should be doing. Everybody agreed. They walked out of the meeting, nothing changed. And so we happened to be in the lead session and um, this came up. And so it got, we got into a whole conversation about trust and how you come to trust each other. And there were different perspectives on how trust is formed. And, you know, underneath a lot of this was that there just wasn't trust. So that's where we focused and we, you know, did some magic inside the room, which is, you know, can't talk about, but we did magic. And I remember going out and calling the CEO at the time and saying, I just want to let you know that thing that we were roadblocked on, you know, I think we are no longer roadblocked on. And um, I said, but I can't tell you, you know, what we did. And the funny thing is, is that cohort came back into the workforce. Um, I had outreaches from four members of the executive team the next day of like, how can we get some of that? How do I, <laughs> how do I get that? And so it was a great place of like, when they're ready for it, you know, then the receptivity to learn something is new. It's same thing with our coaching, right? Like, you, I don't believe like one of the questions was, what did I learn about coaching clients? I don't coach a client who's not ready to be coached. And and I think that would be a cautionary tale I would offer for anybody who is on a list for an organization that matches you with people who they decide for a developmental need should be coached. Um, because if, if the chemistry isn't there between the client and the coach, and if the client does not want to be coached or grow, it's just, you know, I have too, too few heartbeats left. Like, I don't want to waste my breath and time with somebody who just really does not want to do this work just yet. Yeah. How might a coach tell or see an indicator of someone who isn't ready for coaching? It depends, right? So when I get brought into corporate engagements, usually the first conversation was HR because they're vetting through their coaching roster to look for a good fit and your availability and whatever. Then there's usually a conversation with the hiring manager. And that manager, I'm super curious about why they think that person needs coaching, uh, how they know something will be different, and why they think coaching is the answer. Again, sometimes when we sit in those positions, we use subtle manipulation because we think we know the answer. Uh, and so I'm listening for that. Uh, and partly what I'm listening for in there is how well do they know that person? And sort of where's their heart when it comes to that person as opposed to a process that they are putting a person through. Um, and then when I do the intake with a client, I really want to listen for um, their readiness to look at themselves. And so one of the things I listen for is deflection. It's my boss's fault. I am an only woman in the workforce, and that's why I haven't been able to progress. I sit on a team of all, I do a lot of coaching with women. And so we can find all these excuses, and sometimes they're real um, roadblocks to us moving forward, and sometimes they're how we think about them. But what I listen for in those conversations is their willingness to step into their own assumptions and begin to examine those. Sometimes it's their saboteur at play, and so I'm listening for that, and that's just a signal of their saboteur work to get started with. And sometimes they're just resistant. They are just not ready. Um, I was doing an intake with a client 
private coaching client, not corporate. And as we're doing the intake, she says to me, and just so you know, I don't want to do any of that feely stuff. Like, I don't want to talk about my feelings. (laughs) And I said, well, then you're with the wrong coach because the fact that you just said that to me means that's exactly where I'm going to go with you. (laughs) What's that all about? And she starts laughing and we coached together for, you know, six or eight months. And, and so part of it was, you know, there I was gauging her response to my challenging her back on, you know, her, her hard line of, we could talk about all kinds of things that we're not going to talk about feelings. If they don't want to do the work, like I just, like, I get it. People are going to take those gigs because you get a paycheck. But at the end of the day, I want my work to have meaning and, I don't want to waste my time if people don't want to do that work. Mm. On the flip side, can I say a pet peeve are coaches who don't bring value to their clients. Like I have clients right now. It's an engagement uh, with the top of the house and they, I'm now their third round of coaches and they're still dealing with the same problem. And so when I asked them what they wanted to be different or why things had not worked before, they would take ownership for their own resistance to that. And, you know, in their last engagement, it was because the coach and we all hold them accountable for their own agenda. But basically they showed up and the coach is like, what do you want to talk about this, this month? And they didn't quite know how to be in relationship with the coach and how to use the coach well and what that dynamic was about. And I think that's on us to set that set that up for a client in the beginning how how might we better educate and you know tee up our clients to make the most use of us i think that's a great question i think um i think if you're going to do human work you have to have a fundamental belief about the humans you're working with and again most people don't do that work so if you know what you believe about these humans that in, in CTI, they teach us they're naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. They are not broken, right? Then how do I help them understand that, that that's the perspective we will do work for? You know, one of my personal beliefs is that we're all self-motivated to move and act on the world in ways that give us meaning. So what meaning are they trying to create for themselves out of doing this work? What will be different for them? And what's their role in this relationship? What's my role in this relationship? And then back to shared agreements or designed alliance or whatever people call it, you know, how are we going to be together? Uh, What do you need from me? What do I need from you? So that you're able to be in relationship and not just the doing of the coaching. The other thing I do with a corporate client is I create a a cadence for shared check-ins. So usually if it's a six-month engagement at the three-month mark, the manager, the client, HR, if they want to be there, and myself will get together to be like, here was the plan that we set. Here was what you were hoping will evolve. Lead with acknowledgement. You know, what are you noticing is shifting and changing? How are you helping guide and support that? What questions do you have? The employee is the one who shares all that. I'm just there to make sure the space is safe and helps enable their voice. And sometimes we have to practice that. The client needs to practice actually claiming their impact and finding their voice with their manager. So 
So depending on what that need is. Sometimes I'll do a one-off session with the manager because in the session they become, it becomes clear that the dynamic in that relationship is part of it, which is almost always true. Uh, and so, you know, there's some conversation I'll have with the manager about what's their role in this and how will they support it going forward in a way that mm. doesn't break the confidentiality of the client. And then there's always a wrap-up session where we're, we've all decided we're at the end of the engagement or that the engagement needs to be extended um, and what would be different if the, extend, if the engagement were to be extended. Sometimes the client's not ready for you to let go and to let go of you and um, be on their own. And so there's, you know, the art of helping them understand they are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. Um, and sometimes we'll, you know, do touch-up sessions, you know, a little bit along the way. So there's a lot of fluidity. It just depends on your client and their budget and, you know, the need of the organization. But I think it's helping them find their voice and, you know, you not being their voice as you're with their manager, as you're going through, this is probably the thing I notice the most. Yeah. So I'd love to ask you, what is your unique Debbie magic that you bring into your relationships with your clients? I know this is a good question. I, I thought a lot about this. And um, one of my mentors said to me, you are a velvet glove with an iron fist. And I think, you know, <laughs> what my clients get from me is um, knowing that I deeply care about them and I'm going to stay with them in those hard moments, which make it safe for them to do that work and that I'm not going to back away from the challenging hard things that need to be said or asked. You know, you always, you always read your client and know what they can, what they're ready for, but I'm going to, I hold that they're more capable um, than even they give themselves credit for. And so it's, you know, stay, staying in those really hard moments and letting them find their way, but know that they're just held with a lot of love and compassion as they're doing that hard work. Mm. So I think velvet glove, iron fist. Love that, love that metaphor. I mean, I think that that's something that we all... You experience that. <laughs> like, you, you know, we, we have a shared experience. yeah. I think that we all aspire to be more like that. How can some of our listeners practice incorporating more of that into their practice? Hmm. You know, I think everybody has their own flavor, right? My coaching, my writing partner, you know, at Humanity Works, Kate, you know, where I'm a more danger type, I'm going to go laser focused in, you might feel like your head's caught off, you might be a little feel like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. But you know, I'm not going to leave you and I'm going to stay with you. And that's sort of my flavor of who I am. Kate is more of a charm type. And so she's just going to love on you. And she is going to hold you with humor and a, and a lightness that is that is still being held in a very firm way, but it feels different. And if I tried to do that, it would not be authentically who I am. It just wouldn't. And, and so I don't think you can do a type. I think you have to figure out who you are and be that with your clients. And the more continuity of character we are, 
in um, our lives, the safer I think people feel with us. There's a part of me that wants to challenge that. Do it. Yes, come on. In the sense of, I think there's something to be said for, for stretching and leaning into your edges that don't feel as safe or as comfortable. Totally. You know, if I've acted a certain way for most of my life, okay, well, I can easily do that. But I think there's something to be said for really leaning into some of those edges where you might feel less safe. So your range. So, range. So I always think of that as like, how do you stay true to who you are and build range, yeah. right? Because the way I, I believe this in my soul, the way I hold and address and challenge a client is going to be different than the way you do it because our styles are not the same, but it doesn't mean we can't develop the same range in that. I'm sure love and compassion coming from you feels different than love and compassion coming from me because mine's wrapped in an iron fist. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where I think the chemistry between the clients and people and, you know, and it doesn't mean each of us can't, be with different people and in different ways, but the chemistry that lets people feel more vulnerable or feel safe is different with the different people. Mm. So I would agree with you. I mean, but good grief. I like continue to play with my edges always. And um, I'm still who I am and I'm going to show up like I am. Yeah. And I'm pretty clear about who I want to be. So that lets me, understand if I have created an impact somewhere that's different than what I really want and figure out how to take responsibility for that. Well, now I have to ask you, who do you want to be? Who do I want to be? Oh, well, so, okay, here's the funny story. When I left New York, left Time Warner, came back to the Bay Area, my brother and I were standing in the kitchen of my grandmother's house. And my brother, who lovingly calls me snotty, says so snotty you know what do you want to be when you you know what are you going to do next i just remember sitting on the counter in the kitchen i have no idea but i have a fundamental need to change the world of work and so if i'm honest with who i want to be i'm going to be a badass change agent you know i'm going to transform the way well here it is I want to tap into the unstoppable power of human connection and cause transformation of people and organizations so both can reach their fullest potential. I felt that. There I am. Like that's, it's taken me a long time to sort of claim that and say that I both believe I can do it and that I know. And if I don't know, I'll just make this shit up as I go along uh, because there's no roadmap for it. So You know, you have to have the courage to try. For me, it really is both and. Part of my reason we're writing the book, you know, why we founded Humanity Works, the book, the ecosystem that we're building there is about creating a system for change to happen and realizing it's sort of both and. It starts with an individual and those individuals believing if they start being different, it'll affect the people around them and they will start being different. And then together we can shift the way systems and uh, organizations work. 
Mm. But it has to start with us at individual level. And um, part of, I think, what I bring to the table is also understanding how organizations and systems work mm. and where the oppression and roadblocks can be inside those um, that actually create roadblocks to people trying to be good humans. Hmm. I mean, let's talk about this movement that you and Kate are creating. Yeah. yeah. One thing that you've written, I have here in my notes that uh, humanity doesn't come from being a human. It's an outcome, a way of being with another. Mm-hmm. So true. So the company is called Humanity Works. And it really was the outcome of us really stepping back and being like, if you want to change the world, where do you start? And, and it was this reality that, you know, we're all given birth to and born back to identities. And then we grow up in this very unconscious way. And being a human being does not at all mean that you are practicing humanity, which is about compassion and care and connection with others. And, you know, what we see in the world, what I've experienced in companies is there's so much in our own way that keeps us from authentically and genuinely doing that. And then you get into systems that only reinforce. Here's a pet peeve of mine right now. We're about ready to put children back into schools post-COVID. And all of the attention is being placed on keeping them physically safe. So six feet away, PPE, don't touch, eat at desk by yourselves. And my brain is screaming, children are in socialized contexts because they are social beings. And what message are we sending? Who's paying attention to their agency and their developmental needs when we design these structures and put them into it? And I think same thing about bringing employees back into the work environment as opposed to working from home. There's so much, just the classic HR, you know, risk management, classic systems. We follow the checklist, but we're not questioning what are we trying to create when we get inside these environments? Who do we want people to be? How do we want to help promote their humanity? Um, Because if they just need a quiet place to get away from the wife, the two kids, the dog, and you know, the in-laws living at home in their little apartment, totally appreciate that. And what do they need when they come in to be at their fullest potential? And I think we're headed down a slippery slope and it'll self-correct, but with kids in particular, I'm concerned about the damage that might be doing. So, so in that humanity, context, yeah. what, what should we do? What can we do? Well, we should be asking these questions, right? This goes back to me, the rule follower who then is, you know, breaks status quo. Like, I think we have to question, right? It's, it goes back to my mind, what are we trying to accomplish here? And if we're trying to keep people just physically safe, but aren't attending to their psychological needs for well-being, then we're only doing part of the equation. And so how, how, what would it look like if we did both? I don't know the answer to that. We've never had to deal with this before, but we might come up with a different solution than if we're only looking at guidelines that are given to us from organizations that are intended to help prevent the spread of infectious disease. We might prevent that, but we're also preventing something else, which is the developmental needs 
of the humans that are inside those environments. And to me, that's mm. just unforgiving. Mm. So humanity works is really to, you know, figure out how do you bring more humanity to the workplace? Not because it's the nice thing to do, because it's actually good for business, right? Because if we're going to shift business, I actually have to meet them at their point of need, which is to be successful and to be productive. And so, you know, our, our narrative is about productivity and productivity for so many decades has been about efficiency and productivity. So how do you get the most out of the least? And in the mm -hmm. mix of that has been the loss of humanity and people knowing how to be good humans with each other. So the book is called Be Human, Do Better Work. Um, and it really is focused on uh, practices that promote productivity in the workplace and behaviors that enable those practices to thrive. Um, and it is a how-to book, so it isn't a platitude kind of book. They're real live insights and practical tips um, that will help people on their journey as individuals. It is very much message to, it starts with you. Change starts with you. If you don't change, you can't expect other things to change. If there's a problem in your organization, you're part of that solution um, and really calls people forward to be part of that movement to change the things that are not working so well. It's followed by a facilitation guide that people can either do internally for their companies or we'll have trained consultants for people to go in and help. And we'll end with a ability for companies from Fortune 100 to the barista on the corner to be certified as a place where humanity works which I just think will become the leverage then for people to up their game in how they show up in the workplace and uh, let the workplace stand for not just a place where work gets done, but you can do good work and do it in a way that um, feels who you are as a good human. Love that. That's what we're working on. What's the long-term vision here? Uh, the long-term vision is the world would be a better place. And Kate and I are sitting on a beach somewhere drinking Mai Tais and knowing <laughs> that uh, we've transformed the world of work with through humanity. <laughs> That's our long-term view. When I envision yes. our end game, you know, an envision end game could be, this isn't even needed. Like we sort of, you know, it's just part of the default. Because it's just, mm. we've now taught humans a different way. We've taught them how to let humanity live, back to the quote, right? Mm -hmm. You made one other distinction that I've seen from your writing, which is how companies today focus so much on hiring for diversity, things like that. But then we lose people very quickly because of a toxic workplace. What are some of the things that we need to focus on so that we can really keep great, talented people? You've got to be good humans right? You have to be good humans with each other. That's it. So I use this metaphor, if you put a fish in toxic water, it will die. So we spend inordinate amount of energy bringing in amazingly great, diverse talent. But then they come into a workplace where the uplift for them feels harder, where they don't feel accepted, where, you know, they're their voice is not heard in the same kind of way. And it could be that's true for our black community. It could be it's true for our LGBT community. Look, I've been the only woman at a table for years and years and years. And what would it be like if that didn't matter? 
if everybody's voices were able to be heard, if full participation was granted to everybody. And that's what I think is going to make the difference. I think everybody has to be part of that solution. Um, and that's why I've, I am supportive and so optimistic about what's happening in the world right now, because I do think we are at a catalytic point. And um, I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, look, we did this once before and it didn't work. And I'm like, I, I don't understand how you can say that. Like civil rights happened in the 60s. You know, in 63, a woman couldn't own a credit card and was still the property of her husband. So, you know, the rights of LGBTQ were not even, you know, on the horizon. And so we've made progress, but we're not, we're not done with this conversation of just making a place where everyone is included and their best and fullest potential can be expressed. Yeah. And when you do that, then I think diversity hiring goes away. You don't have to worry about that because um, we'll think about the talent marketplace and the participation of the full participation of people inside our organizations in a way that is more conscious than we are today. For people who might be listening who are in HR right now, what is one change that they could make this week that could make a small difference? I think it's a perspective shift. Right. Lots of times people go into HR to make people happy. Lots of times people go into HR because they like the process and the procedure and the control. And there's some sense of safety about that. Um, if there was one thing I would offer, it would be to flip your perspective. It is not about you. It is about how do you give agency to your people? What would that look like? What would it look like? to sit with a manager who wants to put somebody on a performance plan and say, what do you think this is all about? Not tell me what they've done wrong. Tell me how they need to change. What's actually driving that behavior? What do you know about that person? Where is it that your differences might be clouding your perspective? What makes that wrong? Right. Ask those kinds of questions and you will find a different path forward that isn't a procedural checklist that forgets that there's a human involved on the other end of it. That one hits home. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to do some rapid fire questions? Okay, I'm ready. All right. Who's a coach that you admire and why? Probably uh, the Kate Risky Zoomer, who is my writing partner and partner in crime. What I appreciate about Kate is she's a knitter. Like she loves to knit. And I think she does that with humans. I think she takes like the raw material that comes out and she helps make it into something that has meaning and is purposeful. That's awesome. If you could magically acquire one artistic skill, what would it be? It would be watercolor painting. Mm. And part of what well, first, I think it's beautiful. I like the softness. I like the dimension. I like the depth. It looks very easy. It's very hard. Like watercolor painting is super hard because white is actually your negative space, which is like not the way we typically think of it. Um, and so how to hold that negative space and create something beautiful has some sort of deeper connection for me. I have a tough one for you. What is your favorite coaching question? <sighs> I 
think my favorite coaching question is what story are you telling yourself about that? So good. <laughs> what activity or hobby outside of coaching has contributed meaningfully to your practice? That was a hard one. If I'm going to be honest about this question, it's not a hobby, but my family has made me better at coaching. Part of that breakdown and fulfillment was realizing that my family is my first priority, but in the doing of climbing the ladder and being successful and taking on bigger jobs, I hadn't made them the priority. And by shifting my lens to first and foremost my family, um, I think it's made me better um, because I'm actually living the values that I'm helping other people find their alignment on. If you were a dessert, what kind would you uh, be and why? I told you, I tried to figure this out. I don't know what it is, but I would have very complex flavor and be very simple, like watermelon granita with a piece of basil on top, you know? Wow. Fancy. I know. I know. <laughs> but very simple. What's one resource or book that you recommend? Some of my best personal journey work has been the certification through the Leadership Circle Profile. And it gave me a different way to step into a relationship with a client. Um, it gets very quickly to some of the um, needs of a client. It's very aligned with my training at CTI. Um, and I feel like it's broadened my repertoire um, and I use it a lot. Like it's also probably narrowed my repertoire as I say that. Um, and the last question here, if there's one piece of advice you can impart on our audience, what would it be today, Debbie? I think it would be, um, you're never complete. Like keep working on yourself because there's new discovery for there. If it's in your range, if it's in, you know, some hidden recess of your own mind, um, keep learning from other people, keep learning from your own experiences, stay in question of are you living your life, uh, reflecting who you want to be and let go of what you think you're supposed to be doing. Love that. And so your book, Humanity Works, comes out next year in next 2021. Year. 2021. Um, how can people find you? Uh, they can find me two ways. LinkedIn, very active on LinkedIn. We post articles every two weeks um, and podcasts. If people want to follow the movement, be part of the movement, uh, www.humanityworks.com. Uh, you can sign up. Uh, there's even a free download when you register for the newsletter that comes out monthly. Um, and the free download is... Uh, dealing with difficult people is it you or is it them there might be some uh, little nuggets of wisdom for yourself or to use with clients in there nice yeah well this has been a real pleasure thank you so much for your time you bet it's always a pleasure spending time with you